BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are uh, on the second day of the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump today. Um, it, it's funny. Yesterday, I was uh, I was running a quick errand, and while I was, uh, you know, in the car but not actually driving, I, I took out my you know took out my cell phone and seeing if I could find a, a live feed of what was going on in the impeachment trial. And so I figured, you know, Trump impeachment video feed, and you know, with Google basically in so many words, uh, you know, which one, which <laughs> trial, right? <laughs> Um, so it's one of these things about, you know, Donald Trump, you know, which it's, it's, it's not the impeachment trial of Donald Trump, you know, which one are you talking about? Which time when he was, uh, when he was put on trial and, um, and you know, it's funny, uh, in some ways, you know, the whole thing, you know, first time is tragedy, second time is farce, but here, obviously the first impeachment trial is basically a farce, um, Although uh, this one somehow more so, if only because uh, I guess the first time sort of, you know, kind of putting the Senate through its motions, putting the Republican majority through its motions. Like, do you really not care at all that this happened? Like, not at all. Right. Um, And and now we know. Right. I mean, we know that that quite literally they they do not care. and you have this additional thing that, uh, you know, round one, President Trump had sort of like a grab bag of lawyers. He had uh, Pat Chipalone, uh, his White House counsel, who is a very accomplished lawyer. Uh, you, you may not like him, but he's, you know, he, he's not a nobody. He's, he's, a, he's a pretty, pretty top flight lawyer. And then you had uh, Alan Dershowitz you know, former top flight lawyer, now kind of clown figure, you know, halfway to rudy basically. And then you had, uh, God, that guy uh, whose name escapes me, um, uh, the guy who's really involved in the evangelical politics and has, has he, he runs the, his sort of family business is this organization that basically is an advocacy group for, you know, how the right sees religious liberty. In any case, you know, they made their case and it kind of was what it was. And and this time, President Trump, you know, his, you know, no one wants to touch the guy now. I mean, politicians cannot separate themselves from him. But lawyers, lawyers who still want to get the big corporate work, do not want to touch the guy for obvious reasons. And the first legal team he set up, he basically said to them that he, in essence, wanted to make an affirmative defense. So the election was stolen. So, of course, I'm going to do an insurrection. I mean, I'm the aggrieved party here. So those lawyers, and there was some discussion of maybe it was also about money. Not, come on. Come on. If if you, you sign up to, like, defend Donald Trump after his insurrection, after he's president. You're not doing it for the money. This is a, a, a career boost fame kind of thing. In any case, those lawyers did not want to go into, whether it's technically a court or into the Senate, and basically lie on his behalf. So he, he got these other guys who are these kind of like ninth string guys, um, and it was a bit messy. Uh, kind of got negative reviews, even from the uh, senators who have who have sworn a blood oath to uh, uh, you know acquit him no matter what, and uh, even even the arguments they were making were it's funny I did I, I listened to a lot of the I guess his name's David Schoen the second guy uh, making this argument this sort of like highly technical highly strained argument. That when the Constitution speaks of how you try a president, 
it says president, not former president. Ergo, you cannot impeach a former president, even though you can impeach everybody else in the government. But then he had some reason why he couldn't do that. In any case, a very, very, uh, a let's call it a highly, highly textual and... Uh, um, Oh, I had the word at the tip of my tongue and speculative theory. And it's funny when I, I'm, I'm driving in the car, it just shows you how multitasking and, and talented I am. I'm driving in the car and I'm listening to this guy and I'm thinking like, wait a second, by this guy's logic, when you impeach a president, because how it's supposed to work is you're impeached, you're put on trial, you're convicted. If you're convicted, the Senate can then vote again to bar you from office for life. But by his logic, once you're convicted and removed from office, the Senate is actually not allowed to do the second vote because now you're former president. And the Constitution says president, not former president. I mean, the whole thing is like so nonsensical and uh, have to imagine that the the Republican senators there were a little chuffed about, you know, we agreed to exonerate you no matter what, but you're really putting us to our putting us to our test here, this being so ridiculous, you know, and we have all the, we have all the Trump era kind of headlines about Trump was extremely angry. President, very angry, very, very, very angry, even screaming. And there was even like some headline I saw almost screaming, which made me think like, I, you know, I'm almost, I'm always almost screaming because I'm not screaming. I guess you could say I'm almost screaming. Like, I don't even know what that means. Show your scream. Yeah. And so it was sort of like a flashback for me to the Trump era proper when, I mean, think about how much news coverage was president angry, super angry, or kind of, or, or another sort of you know, genre of Trump era reporting of, you know, kind of former, uh, you know, someone who's his BFF, someone who he loves, you know, whether it's Nick Mulvaney or uh, who's the who's the general guy who was uh, chief of staff, John Kelly, John Kelly. And then you see then you see like, you know, first headlines getting frustrated, getting frustrated with Nick Mulvaney, not loving Nick. And that all, you know, leads to very angry might fire him and 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 it just reminded me how much of how much of coverage of president trump was just these things about how angry he is and his mood you know this kind of and and like you don't kind of see i mean you see you know you might see something like you know biden very disappointed in this biden this and uh, we're pretty, you know, we're pretty early in 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 the biden times i mean i guess this is the third week uh but you know, we're never going to see that as like a big thing. Biden's super angry. Was in his private residence yesterday, so, so angry. Even Jill was kind of freaked out. Very angry. Um, so that's where we are. So we're kind of going to, we're going to do this impeachment trial. And I guess the idea is, what, they're probably not going to be witnesses, but they've left open the chance that there could be witnesses. And obviously, unlike last time, it's the Democrats' call. They can do they can have, you know, they can they can decide to do witnesses that's being run by them. I'm a little unclear. I mean, I don't think they would allow themselves witnesses and not allow the president witnesses. But this is the thing, as we saw in uh, Trump impeachment 1.0, uh, majority can kind of do whatever it wants. And um, there's been a number of interviews that uh, uh, Lindsey with Lindsey Graham, where he's basically said, "Oh, you do witnesses, man. We're gonna bring in the FBI, bringing in the ice cream man. You know, just these kind of like, okay, like bring in the ice cream man. I, what, what are you talking about? I mean, is this? Are we worried about this? So that's where we are. So we're gonna talk about all that stuff. Um, you know, I, I kind of feel like." You know, we've had a lot of crises recently. I kind of feel like this is this is almost this week is almost kind of low energy. All right. I mean, okay, sure, we have a, a an impeachment trial, but you know, relative to recent events, like okay, you know, we can take that in stride. 
Uh, anyway, remember that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. It is New Orleans style. It is made from special 100%, a special blend of 100% Arabica beans, French chicory, and signature spices brewed overnight to give you a velvety smooth cup you can drink iced, hot, or spiked in a cocktail. Treat yourself to a gourmet cup of coffee without stepping foot outside, all for less than a buck a cup. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And remember, uh, give it a try. Support our sponsors. That uh, helps them out, helps us out, and everybody gets super happy. So, um, Dave and Kate, what's going on? Hey, Josh. Well, I thought you had a pretty good um, good summation of where we are today as we kind of go into the first, I guess, the impeachment trial kind of starts in earnest today. Yesterday, the question was really centered around, is it constitutional to have an impeachment trial of a former president, kind of like you were laying out? And the Senate did vote. Yes, it is. Uh, there was only one surprise Republican flip. That was Bill Cassidy, uh, senator from Louisiana, who voted with uh, this Rand Paul motion, I guess, last month, declaring the impeachment trial unconstitutional. But he flipped his vote and yesterday voted to continue with the trial, for it to move forward. Um, no other Republicans had changed their vote from the last time around. Um, and so, you know, even though the first day wasn't focused on kind of the actual arguments or, or laying out, you know, the, the eight or 16 hours of, of arguments against Trump, but the Democrats did have a pretty effective presentation, I thought. And maybe we can start with just that 13-minute video that they opened with, uh, which was very visceral and, uh, you know, still jarring to see. I think there's so much kind of user generated content and cable news flashes it, you know, throughout the day. We see it on Twitter. You get these kind of bits and pieces of, of footage of the chaos and the violence and the, and the danger, but seeing it all kind of edited together, I thought made for an effective and emotionally kind of affecting opening for it. And then, you know, you had one of the Democratic House impeachment managers, Jamie Raskin, put it in very personal terms, talking about burying, you know, his son and then being at the Capitol with his, I think, daughter and son-in-law and worried about, you know, losing other family members so soon after, uh, you know, going through personal tragedy. And, and so I thought, you know, the video footage is obviously effective and then kind of putting it in personal terms uh, just really drove the point point home. And then, you know, you got up, we got up uh, to the next round with Bruce, Bruce Castor and David Schoen and Castor giving kind of this meandering speech. Uh, I think he summed up his whole presentation pretty well when he said, oh, I used to work in this building 40 years ago. I used to get lost then and I still do now. And it's kind of like, well, yeah, I can see see uh, where that where that comes from. So I don't know, Kate, any first any other first impressions kind of from the, the first day and then anything you can tell us about kind of what we might expect uh, as things get going today? Yeah, so what kind of struck me the difference between this impeachment and impeachment round one is that the underlying kind of thing we're fighting over here is just so much more emotional than it was last time. Um, you know, the, the Capitol attack is something that everyone watched and, you know, has seen scenes of and there are already pictures from it that are famous, you know, with... Um, Officer Goodman kind of like frozen in, you know, in that moment of panic when he like decided which way to lead the, um, you know, the mob. So that is something that struck me because I think we all know how this impeachment's going to go. There's really not a lot of mystery here. Republicans have made it clear that there's no chance they're going to quit him. So, you know, to some degree, you're almost like, well, this exercise is pointless. We all watch this unfold in real time. It's not like there's going to be a lot of new evidence, but you know, it was uh, this unprecedented or unprecedented since the 19th century attack on, you know, the seat of our government. And that's the kind of thing that I think gets you emotional, even if you know that what happened and that it's coming. And But seeing it sliced together like that, I think, moved people, you know, both inside and outside the chamber in ways they didn't expect. Like, we had all this color from reporters who were in the room of, you know, senators covering their eyes or, you know, clutching their hearts. Um, so, you know, the kind of, even though yesterday was about this constitutionality question, the emotional undertones here, I think, are just 
going to bleed through at every stage of this trial in a way that wasn't so true last time. I mean, last time Democrats were angry, but, you know, kind of the way he was strong arming the Ukrainian president, it's just it's a, it's a little different. It's more corruption-y. It's not so we took a shot to the heart of our government. Um, and then today, um, we found out that they're going to show new footage never before seen of the Capitol attack uh, that was taken from the security footage, you know, the cameras that are uh, in place in the building. Um, and some senior aides to the impeachment team said that uh, it's going to show how close we came to even more extreme violence. And, you know, they said death. So I think kind of putting together those pieces, what we can expect to see today is footage that's going to show how close these people came to, you know, lawmakers um, and, and aides and reporters. And so, you know, I think their curation of it today is really very pointed at you know, making the Republican senator see these people were really, really close to you and they probably would have hurt you if they got their hands on you. So, you know, impeachment team is still kind of doing this all out push to persuade Republicans to come over to their side. Uh, they projected confidence um, this morning talking about, you know, there's Cassidy. We see other signs of movement from Republicans. And, you know, end of the day, Trump is not going to get convicted. There's just no way there's going to be enough Republicans. But for Democrats, the key here is exact as much political pain as possible on the way to that acquittal. So they're going to keep strumming these very emotional heartstrings. Is, is there is there any consensus or any any sense of how? I mean, I I would certainly think uh, uh, Romney will vote to convict. I mean, clearly right. he's you know he's he's. Um, He's crossed that river, right? Yeah. Um, and he did it the harder times. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, um, I, I don't know. I mean, are we thinking that like three or four might might vote to convict? I mean, obviously that's that's not even remotely close to the number you'd need. But I will say that uh, I don't think. Well, certainly not. Um, not in you know in in Trump's first impeachment or with Clinton even even getting majority which seems i think it, it, almost a certainty at this point although i guess you know Harris isn't there so you could in theory get a tie um but in any case do we have a sense of that is there people talking about that or we just have no idea well i think people keep pointing to these constitutionality votes as the roadmap where we've seen what, five, six with Cassidy, maybe. Um, so that seems to me to be like the ceiling. Um, and then the floor being, yeah, you know, alone Romney, even though, I mean, it's just, it's the usual suspects, you know, Murkowski was pissed after yesterday. Collins was perplexed, I'd say is the word. So yeah, I, I think handful at most. But to me, it just seems if you're not going to take, if you're not going to vote that it's constitutional, which is the easier of the two votes, you know, it seems yeah, that it you totally wouldn't be summoning your sense. courage for yeah. the Yeah, and all, uh, although it also, I mean, it's it's so, it, it's just weird because that constitutional argument is so absurd Yeah, that, uh, you know. Well, and it also, I think, kind of, it highlights, you know, Ted Cruz's comment on the way out of the chamber yesterday was, uh, basically, the, the, the president's lawyers um, didn't do a very good job. And then he praised Jamie Raskin as a serious lawyer, which I thought was so funny because the implication of he's a serious lawyer vis-a-vis -vis Trump's lawyers who are not serious lawyers, nonetheless, Cruz voted that the trial is unconstitutional. You know, so it's like they're almost not even really pretending to buy into the arguments at this point. It's more of a you know where I'm going to come down. I know where I'm going to come down. Let's just let's just get yeah, this done. I guess I guess the constitutionality question gives them cover as kind of lame and, and weak as that argument is that, oh, well, we just don't believe it's constitutional in the first place. So why would I vote to convict Trump? And I think, Josh, you're probably right that there's maybe a handful of Republican senators who might come around to it, the usual suspects that we've talked about. Um, one thing I can't quite get my head around is the kind of PR push maybe behind the scenes of Mitch McConnell. You know, he had that <laughs> leak to the New York Times. I guess this was like kind of late last year, maybe early this year, saying that oh, he was so mad at 
Trump and he was open to, you know, he wanted the impeachment process to go forward. And then he's basically just kind of turned around and defended Trump at every turn. Yesterday, he voted against the constitutionality of the impeachment trial. And then there was yet another leak, I guess, to Bloomberg this time that he hasn't made up his mind yet on which way he'll vote and that he's signaling to Republican colleagues, this is a vote of conscience and like, you know, vote vote your heart, you know, but um, I just can't see any scenario where McConnell turns around and convicts Trump. So I just don't quite get what that, what that PR push behind the scenes is really about. Like virtue signaling. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, and maybe it, it, I could see where he may think it, it keeps, uh, you know, keeps Trump a little on his best behavior. You know, uh, just to keep a little, keep a, a touch of uncertainty um, doesn't hurt him. And it's, it's again, in that, in that, at least the version of it I saw of, to Bloomberg, it's, you know, something like, you know, telling associates he may vote, you know, like, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty tenuous, right? It's not, you're not going to, I don't think uh, you're going to have, you know, a bunch of Trump insurgents like surrounding his house and saying, you told Bloomberg, you may consider, you know, you told associates, you may consider voting possibly to impeach. Fuck that. We're going to burn your house down. You know, so you can have it kind of both ways. I mean, I will, I want to, something you mentioned, Kate, and I've been wondering about this when we were going to see the first um, closed caption, you know, surveillance tapes, because unsurprisingly, that complex is lousy with security cameras, right? I mean, there are security cameras everywhere. So they basically must have, you know, I mean, every moment of everything, if anything, that almost, you know, there's a separate issue of their apparently the holdup in trying to con- uh, indict someone for the murder of Officer Sicknick is, at least according to the you know to the leaks out of the investigation, they're having a hard time pinpointing when he sustained the injury that later killed him. And obviously, if you can't p- pinpoint the the when the injury happened, you can't blame it on someone because you don't know who did it. And um, one of the things that has been, you know, one of the oddities about that death that has been sort of hanging out there about it is that apparently he was, you know, relatively okay after sustaining the injury, whatever the injury was, goes back to like, you know, the the headquarters of the Capitol Police and collapses, and then he subsequently dies. So it's possible that what, you know, it's certainly possible that he had, you know, several sort of violent encounters and it's just not clear which one you know was a, was a was a mortal injury um but uh but yeah i mean there there's there's just so much we have i mean again as far as i know we we have yet to have any press conference I and mean, we had that one that the u.s attorney in dc did but we haven't really had more than that about just okay, what have you found out? What's the you know kind of n- none of that, which is which yeah, is it's very shocking, which yeah. is very very strange, and it and it's no longer at the point where you can say, well, you know, Mitch is keeping it bottled up, or or Trump won't let him do it. I mean, places run by Democrats now, uh, and and I assume that one of the main reasons we're not seeing the closed caption TV is that obviously you know criminal investigators want to keep everything bottled up for obvious reasons, but. It's one of those things about Congress that that's their place. They run it. They don't have to talk to the attorney general. They don't have to talk to anybody. It's their place. So basically, uh, depending, I don't know exactly, you know, what the distribution is between, you know, the leadership of the House and the Senate, but they're all Democrats. So Pelosi can just say, print it, show it, you know, Um, and, and they have both a uh, a political legal rationale in that they're doing this trial and it's obviously highly relevant but I would imagine you just want people to see what happened because it's shocking it remains absolutely shocking and I think the lack of details that you're talking about and kind of the lack of pub- any seeming compulsion for these people to let the public in on what happened is 
almost kind of compounding the just the trauma because there we just like don't know what caused this violence you know and it's also led to there's been like very little talk of the the two officers who committed suicide in the wake of the attack um you know and i think it was this big <laughs> traumatic thing for people who were there for people who watched it for everyone and it's kind of clouded in this uh pale of we don't know anything we don't know any details um and you know i i wonder i don't even know if that kind of stuff is going to even come out in this trial because all the groups involved have been so you know so tight-lipped wasn't there i mean there was at least some some reporting that federal prosecutors are are uh considering a rico prosecution and that is this law that was designed to deal with the mafia but the idea is that it it allows prosecutors to get you know to reach beyond the individual who did the specific crime and say you were part of a criminal organization we are going to hold the organization responsible um for you know, for your crime, for being a criminal organization, and, and the application of that to the mafia, sometimes to uh, organized crime with drugs, blah, 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 you know, pretty straightforward. But, you know, one of the things, aside from what may be relevant in a criminal, you know, criminal trial context, one of the things I'm most interested in is that it's clear that you've got a core of people who were there that day to go and storm the Capitol. That was what they wanted to do. Still a little unclear about what their, you know, kind of ultimate aim was, whether it's to sort of, uh, you know, intimidate, to kidnap, whatever. But kind of they go in with a very specific plan. And there's and there's seems to be some evidentiary trail about the actual planning to do that. Then you clearly have a larger penumbra of people who kind of know things are going to get rowdy and uh, maybe they know, maybe they're thinking of what happened in Michigan in April where a bunch of, and I actually did a post about this today, these things are clearly deeply connected in terms of the sort of the norm busting, the permissioning structure of all of this. But in any case, some people kind of like are there for whatever happens and want to kind of be rowdy and and do whatever. But and and this isn't exonerating those people, but there's different levels of planning, right? And I would imagine there are some people that kind of didn't quite know what to expect when they went over to the Capitol. But as soon as people started rushing in, they're up for it. And so I'm very interested in the interplay, bet- you know, bet- to the extent that it can be sussed out between those different, those different groups. And again, we've, we've, th- that would be the kind of thing that, you, that one imagines might come out in a RICO prosecution, because you have to, the way that works is you would have to say, like, let's just say hypothetically, it's the Proud Boys they're going after. You have to say, look, Proud Boys is an organization, it has membership, it has all these different kind of things. It, it, it you know, it counts as, a, as an organization for the purposes of RICO. Um, the key people did this, that, and the other. Uh, but again, it is very weird that we're, even at this point, and, and let alone we don't know all the details, again, one press conference. There's just very little. And, um, you know, in some ways, it's probably not too soon to remember the point about the Mueller investigation, which is to say that, you know, criminal prosecutions, the point of a criminal prosecution is to prosecute an individual person and punish them. It's not to give you the full story as the public about what happened. So I I think we need and, and, you know, Maybe this would get folded into a larger kind of Trump commission or something like that. But we need some kind of commission to sort of tell this story. And as far as I know, there's there's been no move to create that. Yeah, that's been mentioned a few times. Pelosi especially has said it a bunch. But yeah, I don't I don't recall at least hearing anything about 
you know, more solid than that, more solid than the we need something like a 9-11 commission type thing. Yeah. Let me ask you uh, just about the kind of timing and strategy of the trial, which is, I think, Republicans and Democrats alike don't want this to take up too much time. Republicans, for obvious reasons, and Democrats, I guess, also, you know, Biden has been pretty tight-lipped about the process. Whenever he's asked about impeachment, he's basically responds by saying, I've got a job to do. I'm worried about Americans going hungry and the COVID relief package and getting people back to work and all that. Um, and the Senate can kind of handle its own business. Um, by all accounts, this will probably be wrapped up by you know, Saturday evening, potentially. So it will be not even a full week. That's assuming that there aren't witnesses, which seems like you said, Josh, to be kind of, you know, what the consensus is or or how we're all assuming the trial will play out. Do you feel like, is that enough attention for the, you know, the span of the trial? Is there, an, you know, an advantage to to dragging it out a bit by calling witnesses to keeping the pressure on Republicans or really you know, kind of trying to have an accounting of what actually happened in the riot. And Kate, I'm curious to get your thoughts, too. Yeah, I mean, I think what Josh said is right, that we need a much more thorough accounting of what happened. But I also think that's not going to happen in this trial. And that being said, you know, kind of the theme of our pod since the Biden administration began is that there's a really truncated timeline for when they're going to be able to be legislatively effective. Um and so, you know, that's top of mind for Democrats. And it's not like there really is any Republican pressure or any pressure on the Republicans. I mean, obviously, this is making them look bad to people who care about the insurrection and think it was a bad thing and think, it, you know, Trump was responsible. But even opinions on that are so baked in. And we've seen from, you know, Senate Republicans' response to Trump all along is that the political impetus is for them to stick to his side. So in that way, there's not really that much pressure. Uh, Democrats know that they're, if they if they want the Biden administration to be successful, there's only a few months in which to do that. So yeah, I think the fast timeline kind of makes sense. Both sides want it, so it'll probably happen. Um, and on the witness question, I almost feel like these videos they've been showing are kind of standing in for having people testify because this is what they would testify to, but you get to watch it and experience it. And that's probably even more emotional kind of compared to what we saw last time where we had, you know, Vin Bin and Hill and these people testify. You know, a piece of that is that you need these people to be articulate and good public speakers and to have good stage presence and all these other things that career civil servants don't necessarily have, you know? So this is a way where they can control the narrative with this video video footage. It's very emotional and you don't really have to worry about the messenger. Yeah, I mean, that's a good I, point. It speaks for itself, kind of. I, I would, I mean, it to the extent that they had more details on, you know, this person had a gun and this person got here. And I guess that's sort of what they're going to get into with this video today. But to the extent that they could do those, those, those could potentially be interesting testimony. But I, I, it's hard for me to imagine testimony that would be more compelling or tell us more than what we saw happen in real time and what we have seen sort of embroidered over time in, in, you know, in more examples of video coming forward. I mean, what, who would testify and what would they say? I mean, I, you know, maybe you could get like, you know, the girlfriend, he was, I believe they were not married, you know, the girlfriend of the officer who died, that would be very, you know, pretty intense. Um, but I, I'm not sure what would move the ball. And, and frankly, uh, it, th there's nothing stopping uh, Democrats in either chamber for doing, which I think they should, hearings, you know, doing an investigation uh, uh, about that. And, and my sense through this whole thing has been, you know, great if there are some, you know, if there, if there are some witnesses that are actually going to kind of expand on the story. But anything that is going to meaningfully slow down getting the COVID relief package done or any of the sort of the, you know, kind of related uh, important things, I, I'd say no. Because 
that's important. That's really important. And so get, you know, get this done with, move through it. Um, but I don't see any reason to delay things unless again, there's some testimony not clear to me what it would be that is just such a big deal. You have to do it. That's the priority. The priority is the, is the relief bill. Yeah. And you know, DT, you also mentioned that Biden has been very reticent on the impeachment trial. Um, I just want to say, I think that's exactly what he should be doing. Um, he doesn't have really anything to do with it. And the only thing that him weighing in does is kind of strengthen the bad faith arguments that this is a partisan spectacle and, you know, just a, a way to punish a hated president kind of thing. And, you know, meanwhile, he... I know we talk a lot about bipartisan and unity being used as cudgels by Republicans against Democrats doing things they don't like. But, you know, he does have an interest in getting things done in a bipartisan way. And I think the more he kind of stays out of this very emotional and raw fray and deals on the legislative side with things um, or, you know, the, the influence he can have on the legislative things is, you know, exactly the, the lane that he should be in. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, well, maybe we can spend just the last few minutes we have uh, in this episode talking about kind of a related issue, which is just a, a growing swell of Republican retirements. Was it just earlier this week, Kate, you wrote up uh, Richard Shelby, senator from Alabama, uh, announcing that he won't run for re-election. I think Shelby is in his 80s, I want to say. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, he's 86. Um, so, mm -hmm. yeah, 86. So, understandable. Uh, <laughs> Rob Portman, who's quite a bit younger, not a young man by any means, but um, young in Senate terms, is also not running for re-election. You know, is there, what's behind I, this? I think if you you're, think? you know, if you're in the Senate, if you're under 70, you're like a young gun. Exactly. Right? An, up and, an up and comer. Yeah. A rising star. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Is there any, do you have any sense of what's driving this? Is it, um, you know, just, it's not fun kind of being in the minority and there's, I, you know, there are a lot of open Republican seats in 2022. So it doesn't seem like Republicans chances of taking back the Senate are especially high, although they could flip the house, uh, in the next midterms. But What's uh, what's behind this recent kind of wave of retirements? Well, the interesting thing about that is, historically speaking, Republicans should win one, if not both, uh, chambers this cycle, just because of uh, the historical precedent of, you know, the last four times a president has gone in with both chambers of his same party, he has lost one of them in the midterms. Um, so it's not, you know, the retirements are interesting because it's not like they're facing a year that is going to be a Republican bloodbath. You know, we don't know that at all. Um, and the retirements have actually made for a much more competitive uh, battleground for Democrats, because so far we've also seen Pat Toomey and Richard Burr announce their retirements, opening up seats in Pennsylvania and North Carolina, you know, which are not Republican locks by any means. Um, you know, Portman is the only one who's been fairly candid about his retirement, um, or perhaps the most candid. He said that, you know, it's just become so hard in this hyper-polarized time to get anything through the Senate that, you know, he wants out, essentially. Um, Shelby, you know, makes a little more sense. He's very old. That being said, though, he has been either the chairman or ranking member on the Appropriations Committee for years, which is a very powerful position. Um and while I don't think an open Alabama seat is exactly the same grounds for contest as, say, an open Pennsylvania seat, uh, despite Doug Jones's uh, surprise win in 2017, the point of all of this is for for Democrats, the more Republican incumbents who say who bow out and who turn their seats from safe Republican holds to any kind of competition, anything Republicans will have to spend money and resources on to defend, that's a good thing for Democrats. Um, Especially given, like you said, DT, that right now Democrats only have a five-seat majority in the House, which is very tenuous. Um, the uh, campaign arm of the National Republicans on the House side put out a list of their targets today, um, the seats that they're going after, either due to, uh, you know, they've, they've broken them up into different segments. But some of one segment of that is all about redistricting, which is going to be a huge Democratic concern as we're going on, because down ballot Democrats didn't do that well in a lot of states, um, giving Republican state legislatures control over the redistricting process, which is going to 
make it even more of an uphill battle to hold the House. So yeah, the, the retirements on the Senate side are nothing but good for Democrats right now. And, you know, they might not be at an end. There's been speculation that now Ron Johnson from Wisconsin is the most uh, vulnerable member in the chamber, that he might call it quits. Um, I was, you know, I think, I think I saw you, I think I saw you tweet that maybe. I was stunned. Mm -hmm. I I didn't know that was considered to be on the radar at all. I mean, just, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, um, you know, he seems to, he seems to like being a jerk in the Senate, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, uh, you know, it was, it was, I mean, both of his elections have been shocking. It was shocking when he won the first time. Um, and, uh, there's um uh it was he ran against Feingold in 2016 is that right yeah and that was really shocking everybody you know everybody's everybody's sense was kind of like okay he came in on 2014 and kind of you know uh beat Feingold and now Feingold's going you know going to come back and kind of you know in a in a better year and obviously Trump's going to destroy the Republican party and no Republican's going to win blah 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 and he won right it was like really i mean shocking and really kind of heartbreaking for a lot of us especially because um a lot of people uh you know for many people um Russ Feingold wasn't just any senator right he was a kind of an um, an important person um but that's interesting i mean if if that that would be amazing if if he i mean it's funny i'm almost i almost wonder what democrats prefer you know the people at the senate committee would would they do they want to run against him again because i mean man he is highly polarizing he really is a get you know get out the get out the democrats person um but obviously he does have the inherent powers of incumbency or do you want Republicans to, I, I was going to say, you know, kind of have some normal kind of person. Well, that's not going to happen. But you can at least have someone who doesn't have the track record. You know, you have someone who just kind of comes in some kind of, you know, sort of like Johnson was. CEO, going to run government like a business type and, and can kind of, uh, you know, not have Johnson's baggage. Anyway, that, that I'm, that, that's fascinating to me, you know, that, that that's possible. And it shows their mindset, too, that, you know, if if we were just looking at a Shelby retirement, he's 86, his seat is in Alabama, it's a safe Republican hold, you could be like, well, you know, he's been in there forever. But the fact that we're having people either retiring or considering retiring in places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin that are going to be real fights either way kind of shows that these people who, you know, were part of the Republican Party pre-Trump and who are generally considered to be more creatures of the institution are still kind of prioritizing their own exit ramp over, you know, making this seat a safer hold for the party in a evenly split Senate. It, it, it is interesting to me that it, it, it doesn't seem at all impossible that the Democrats could lose the House. I mean, if for nothing else, I mean, depending on how redistricting goes, mm-hmm. it could be a situation where, like, it's almost impossible for, yep. them to, for them to hold it just because of the way the districts are drawn. So uh, a scenario where, you know, even if it's not like a blowout, you know, Republicans get a 10-seat majority, something like that, just, you know, almost purely on the basis of redistricting. But Democrats expand and maybe even significantly expand their Senate majority at the same time. Um, th- that does not seem, I mean, because again, th- there there are a number of open seats in states that are not, you know, not Alabama, not Wyoming, um, places that, that have, you know, are very purple, you know, certainly at the, um, at the state level, uh, notwithstanding what happened, you know, the very disappointing Senate race that they just had in, in, in North Carolina. Uh, that's not a, you know, that's not a lock, uh, Pennsylvania, that's not a lock at all. And with John Especially Fetterman, with, I think that, yeah, big John Fetterman yeah, entering the race. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's Come on the pod. Yeah. Please. That looks, that looks, that looks pretty good. Um, but I will say too, it's just, I'm not, these are not normal times. Um, and it's certainly entirely possible that, you know, things don't go great the next two years and there's, you know, you have all of the 
um, you know, anti-incumbency stuff really hurts the Democrats. But I, I also think that, you know, coming off everything that has happened in the last two or three years, it, it's, it's not clear to me that, that it's a given that uh, Democrats are going to have a, a, a hard midterm election. We just, we just don't know. There's, there's many more variables that just, you know, you, you, you don't normally have to have to figure on. Right. Plus, there's also the more traditional variables of like, you know, how strong is the Biden presidency, which obviously is all tied up with, you know, the filibuster in the Senate and everything else. But, you know, how much stuff can they pass to run on will be part of this as well. And it's funny, something you mentioned, Josh, when we think of this, but I've been doing reporting the last couple of days about uh, Ohio, particularly, um, which, you know, Trump won in 2016 and 2020, which has kind of made people write it off as a swing state, say, you know, it's not the bellwether it once was. Anyway, I've been talking to a lot of people who have traced the political history in the state, and it's, it is a little more um, a little more complicated than just that it's not a swing state anymore. There have been pretty significant Democratic droughts there before, um, and Democrats have come back from them despite the fact that there are Republican trends in the state and things that are kind of making Democrats more competitive in other states and that have turned, say, you know, Virginia and Colorado into blue states is especially this Democratic lean of the suburbs. Um, and in Ohio, that shift is not happening quite as much. And the red parts of Ohio are getting a lot redder and the city populations are dwindling. Um, so you don't really have that balanced out. But something I talked to a lot of people about was would you, for a Democrat, would you rather have a kind of more nutty Republican, a Jim Jordan, a, someone on the right fringe, would you rather have that person be the person that the Democrat is running against for the Portman seat? Um, and they pretty much all gave me the same answer, which is usually, yeah, but now I'm too scared that that person could win, you know, and that's the gamble that you take. Maybe someone who's easier for the Democrat to beat but maybe someone who's kind of a lunatic winning the seat and becoming a senator. What are, what are people, the people you talk to, what do they think mm -hmm. about Tim, Tim, it's Tim Ryan, right? Yeah. The, 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 you know, cause he's this guy, he's been sort of some, you know, kind of, uh, often not liked by progressives in, in, in DC. I think he challenged Pelosi a couple times. Um, but he seems like, a really good fit for that race. He kind of has that, you know, he he's has a strong union background, you know, in a in a it at least at least a state where the sort of the the image of of trade unionism is still heavily kind of, you know, male industrial workers and stuff like that. So it kind of seems to me if anybody's going to if anybody you'd want to run, it would be someone like that who has some sort of cultural um you know, cultural adjacency to Trumpism, um, at least, you know, kind of presentationally, uh, but also is a Democrat, D right. after his name. And, you know, even if he's not someone that the sort of uh, progressive caucus in the House is crazy about, you know, not 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 a bad addition to the Senate. Do people people? Yeah, I would say that the people I talked to would pretty much uh, there's definitely some wry chuckling about him just because he has been very ambitious for a long time. So kind of in the way of, well, it was a matter of time before he was going to go for this. You know, he did, he run, he ran for president um, in 2020, right. which I think <laughs> some people forget, but yep. um, you know, the it was other, pretty forgettable. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing about him is in some ways, I think you're right. Like it seems he is a good fit and for Democrats who are trying to replicate Sherrod Brown's kind of singular success in the state among this Democratic drought, you know, you think, okay, white guy who, if he can maybe speak the language of economic populism, that's something that seems to have united Ohioans behind both Brown and Trump to some degree. But, um, you know, the other thing I kept hearing is that people were saying that with some criticism of the Ohio State Democratic Party, that they keep trotting out the same people and it keeps not working. And one person compared it to Michigan in 2018 where Democrats performed really well. And he was telling me the difference between here and Michigan in 2018 is that in Michigan, everyone who ran was either a woman or an African-American man and they all won. And in Ohio, we put up this slate of old white men who everybody's seen before, who everyone knew before, who weren't exciting.
So I have seen kind of a lot of arguments in favor of picking someone who would galvanize Ohio Democrats, maybe more, even more so than picking someone like Ryan, who would maybe be uh, seen as kind of a safer, more generally um, appealing person. Like you also, Nan Whaley keeps coming up. She's the uh, mayor of Dayton, um, who's gotten some national coverage from uh, a tornado, I guess, and uh, a shooting kind of hitting back to back there. Um, and then you have Amelia Sykes, who is this young black woman who's the minority leader of the House of Representatives. And, you know, another theme that I that kept coming up over and over again is people saying that Democrats in Ohio are doing a terrible job of reaching out to the black community specifically and are kind of stuck in this entrenched model of Ohio politics, which is like, Democrats are only going to get votes from the unions, and that's what you need to appeal to, this kind of like older white blue collar version of Democrats at the expense of especially black communities, especially urban communities, um, you know, because Trump actually raised his vote share in the cities in Ohio from 2016 to 2020. So, and you know, that being said, the Biden campaign did not really compete in Ohio. They didn't even formally set up shop until August, September. So, you know, they clearly saw easier routes to the White House, which I think was, you know, a good decision in retrospect. But the the, the party apparatus is rusty. They, Ohio as it is, is a hard, large, very regionalized state. If you look at all the other states at borders, it's like one corner is totally different from another. And it's really expensive. It's cloaked in media markets that you have to compete in. So... There's, well, let, me, let me just add one one last thing here, and because I think a lot of people think about, well, okay, you know, Pennsylvania, Mich- or you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, kind of, you know, these Rust Belt states. What at least you know, people who are there know this, but what I think people forget, Ohio is an Appalachian state. Sure, not not like up in the in the you know in the north. But it is big parts of it are basically an Appalachian state, which is to say it has much more similarity to, uh, you know, kind of Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia than it does these, you know, uh, uh, Great Great Lakes states. So that's one thing that. I think, you know, people, I think, I think the comparison to Michigan, obviously Michigan's got a pretty wild Republican party. We've seen that a lot, just even, even in recent days, but it's, it's different. It's not just another kind of like a a different version of Wisconsin and Illinois and, and, and Michigan. Um, So that's important to to keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I talked to Sherrod Brown's um, longtime pollster and the way she put it is, it would be a mistake to compare Ohio to Michigan or Kentucky, but there are parts of it that are just like both of those states. Right. So it's just so intensely regionalized. You have to have this really broad appeal to a lot of different people. Um, and that's just, you know, that's been a roadblock to Democrats for like the past 10 years there. Right. All right. Well, I think we should uh, leave it there. I've got impeachment starting up and... Uh Lots to get to still, but we should come back to this next week and talk, you know, maybe there will be more retirements we can talk about or <laughs> more candidates uh, in the mix. Um, so, but Kate, that was really helpful um, to hear all that context. So thank mm-hmm. you for sharing all that. Yeah. yeah remember uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's cold brew iced coffee. If you're ready to give it a try, you can get 25% off your first order at Grady's with promo code TPM. That's Grady's cold brew com with promo code TPM. All right. All right. See, All see right. you next week. Later, see folks. See you guys. Bye.